welcome back to Nettie Reads, a classic podcast for my mother. She read to me when I was little, so now I'm returning the favour and you're welcome to listen along. It's Sunday, and that means I'm reading a classic. Thursdays are for offbeat stuff. But whatever I'm reading, it's always great writing. In fact, it's the second Sunday of Advent for 2021, the particular Christian festival season that prepares for the celebration of the Nativity of Christ on Christmas Day, December 25. And tonight I am reading Ben-Hur, the classic 19th century work of historical fiction by amazing American author Lewis Wallace. Do you know the book? More than 50 million copies have been sold worldwide and it's been translated into nearly 40 languages and has never been out of print since 1880 when it was published. The full title is Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ, and so I think it's a timely pick for the Nudie Reads podcast for Advent. Ben-Hur is not a direct tale of the Christ, however. It's an inventive, indirect telling. It's the tale of a fictional young man, a Jewish prince, Judah Ben-Hur of Jerusalem, and his adventurous life, shall we say, during which Christ is also living and dying. So the setting is the time when Jerusalem and the Jewish land of Palestine was well and truly part of the Roman Empire, governed by the Romans. Ben-Hur is deliberately wrongly accused by a friend, a Roman, of trying to assassinate a Roman governor. He is enslaved and sent to Rome, but he's freed and becomes a soldier and a charioteer. Now, if any of you listening have seen the 1959 Hollywood blockbuster movie of the book, starring Charlton Heston, you'll know The Chariot Race. You can check it out on YouTube, but I recommend the whole movie. It is amazing. And so is the author, Lou Wallace, a truly amazing American gent. Before I get to reading, a bit about Lou. He was born in 1827 in Indiana. Daddy was a well-to-do lawyer and congressman, and mother sadly died when Lou was just seven. He was sent to boarding school and discovered a talent for writing, and he followed his father's footsteps and practiced law for a while and was married in 1852, and he and his wife Susan had one child, Henry. But that's as normal as Lou Wallace ever got. He was also a Republican and a Union general in the United States Civil War. He did very well there until some mix-up with orders at Shiloh, but redeemed himself later at Monocacy, Maryland. He served on the commission into the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln. He was the governor of New Mexico Territory at the time of Billy the Kid. In fact, he had a lot of dealings with the kid. And then he was some kind of diplomat to the Ottoman Empire, stationed in Constantinople. And if you like that terrific town, I covered a small part of it in episode 84. Lou Wallace was a pal of Sultan Abdul Hamid II, 
He patented a traveller's fishing rod, among other patents. He made his own violins. Yes. And he wrote ten books. But Ben-Hur is what Lou Wallace is mostly known for today. The book was published in November 1880. So think about that timeline. The American Civil War lasted for four years, 1861 to 1865. It was a brutal conflict and left somewhere around three quarters of a million soldiers dead to fighting, disease and privation, and goodness knows how many others, out of a population at that time that was only 31 million. So the Civil War was only 15 years before Ben-Hur was published. The US was still reeling from it. There were real divisions still between people, and from that, real crises of faith. The most popular books to that time were the Bible and Harriet Beecher Stowe's anti-slavery novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, of 1852. That's a pre-Civil War book. Wallace's tale of the Christ, without directly telling the tale of the Christ, was a salve for the times. The book is about Ben-Hur, who is betrayed by Voldemort. Oh, sorry, actually, no, not Voldemort, for you Harry Potter lovers out there. Ben-Hur is betrayed by Messala. Remember that name, Messala, because he really is one of the all-time baddies of fiction, a real villain. Judah Ben-Hur and Messala Severus, they're about the same age as Christ, born year dot, for those of us who count our years in Anno Domini the years since Christ was born, 2021, 2021 years since Christ was born. Ben-Hur and Messala were childhood friends in Jerusalem. Ben-Hur is Jewish, Messala the son of a Roman. At 15, Messala returns to Rome to complete his schooling and he comes back to Jerusalem in 26 AD as a soldier responsible for a fort that Jews had been attacking. He reconnects with Ben-Hur, but they both discover that they are nothing like their childhood selves. Messala had expected Ben-Hur to help him putting down Jewish trouble, and Ben-Hur had expected Messala not to interfere with Jewish lives. A falling roof tile leads to an incident and it leads to Messala turning his back and allowing Ben-Hur to be wrongly arrested as a would-be assassin. Ben-Hur's life is overturned. He is enslaved. His family is horribly imprisoned. And as he goes down into the galley to begin a new awful life rowing with other slaves, he encounters 26-year-old Christ. Ben-Hur has vengeance in his heart for Messala, and he wants Romans out of Judea. But Christ's message of strength and resolve makes him able to endure the horror of his enslavement. It's a really complicated story, but it's complicated like Harry Potter, in a good way, a way that's quite transporting. Ben-Hur ends up freed in Rome adopted by a consul. 
and he returns to Judea and he witnesses Christ's crucifixion. But at one point, he and Messala are involved in a chariot race. Four horses per chariot, six participants, an Athenian, a Corinthian, a Byzantine, a Sidonian, Ben-Hur, and Messala. I am reading The Chariot Race. So imagine a Roman circus, an oval-shaped, sand-covered circus, track, inside of a stadium, packed with people, on a sunny afternoon. All day they have been watching athletes and games, but now arrives the signature event. Let's begin. About three o'clock, speaking in modern style, the program was concluded except the chariot race. The editor, wisely considerate of the comfort of the people, chose that time for a recess. At once, the vomitoria were thrown open and all who could hastened to the portico outside where the restaurateurs had their quarters. Those who remained yawned, talked, gossiped, consulted their tablets, and all distinctions else forgotten merged into but two classes, the winners who were happy and the losers who were grum. Now, however, a third class of spectators, composed of citizens who desired only to witness the chariot race, availed themselves of the recess to come in and take their reserved seats. By so doing, they thought to attract the least attention and give the least offence. Among these were Simonides and his party, whose places were in the vicinity of the main entrance, on the north side, opposite the consul. As the four stout servants carried the merchant in his chair up the aisle, curiosity was much excited. Presently, someone called his name. Those about caught it and passed it on along the benches to the west, and there was hurried climbing on seats to get sight of the man. Ilderim was also recognised and warmly greeted. Presently, Sanbalat came to the party. I am just from the stalls, O Sheik, he said, bowing gravely to Ilderim, who began combing his beard while his eyes glittered with eager inquiry. The horses, sir, they are in perfect condition. Ilderim replied simply, If they are beaten, I pray it be by some other than Messala. At length, the recess came to an end. The trumpeters blew a call at which the absentees rushed back to their places. At the same time, some attendants appeared in the arena and, climbing upon the division wall, went to an entablature near the second goal at the west end and placed upon it seven wooden balls. Then, returning to the first goal, upon an entablature there, they set up seven other pieces of wood hewn to represent dolphins. What shall they do with the balls and the fishes, O Sheikh? asked Balthazar. Hast thou never attended a race? Never, never before, and hardly know why I am here. Well, they are to keep the count. At the end of each round run thou shalt see one ball and one fish taken down. 
The preparations were now complete, and presently a trumpeter in gaudy uniform arose by the editor, ready to blow the signal of commencement promptly at his order. Straight away the stir of the people and the hum of their conversation died away. Every face nearby and every face in the lessening perspective turned to the east as all eyes settled upon the gates of the six stalls which shut in the competitors. The unusual flush upon his face gave proof that even Simonides had caught the universal excitement. Ilderim pulled his beard, fast and furious. The trumpet sounded, short and sharp, whereupon the starters, one for each chariot, leaped down from behind the pillars of the goal, ready to give assistance if any of the fours, the arrangements of four horses each chariot, proved unmanageable. Again the trumpet blew, and simultaneously the gatekeepers threw the stalls open. First appeared the mounted attendants of the charioteers, five in all, Ben-Hur having rejected the service. The chalked line was lowered to let them pass, then raised again. They were beautifully mounted, yet scarcely observed as they rode forward, for all the time the trampling of eager horses and the voices of drivers scarcely less eager were heard behind in the stalls, so that one might not look away an instant from the gaping doors. The chalked line up again, the gatekeepers called their men. Instantly the ushers on the balcony waved their hands and shouted with all their strength, Down! Down! They might as well have whistled to stay a storm. Forth from each stall, like missiles in a volley from so many great guns, rushed the six fours, and up the vast assemblage rose, electrified and irrepressible, and leaping upon the benches, filled the circus and the air above it with yells and screams. This was the time for which they had so patiently waited. This the moment of supreme interest. The competitors were now under view from nearly every part of the circus. Yet the race was not begun. They had first to make the chalked line successfully. The line was stretched for the purpose of equalising the start. If it were dashed upon, discomfiture of man and horses might be apprehended. On the other hand, to approach it timidly was to incur the hazard of being thrown behind in the beginning of the race, and that was certain forfeit of the great advantage always striven for, the position next to the division wall on the inner line of the course. The arena swam in a dazzle of light, yet each driver looked first thing for the rope, then for the coveted inner line. So, all six aiming at the same point and speeding furiously, a collision seemed inevitable. What if the editor, at the last moment, dissatisfied with the start, should withhold the signal to drop the rope? Or if he should not give it in time? The crossing was about 250 feet in width. Quick the eye, steady the hand, unerring the judgment required. There is scarcely anything to compare to the spectacle offered by the six contestants. Let the reader try to fancy it, 
Let him first look down upon the arena and see it glistening in its frame of dull grey granite walls. Let him then in this perfect field see the chariots, light of wheel, very graceful. Let him see the drivers, erect and statuesque, undisturbed by the motion of their cars, their limbs naked and fresh and ruddy from the healthful polish of the baths. In their right hands, goads, suggestive of torture, dreadful to the thought. In their left hands, held in careful separation and high, that they might not interfere with the view of the steeds, the reins, passing taut from the four ends of the carriage poles. Let him see the four horses chosen for beauty as well as speed. Let him see them in magnificent action, their masters not more conscious of the situation and all that is asked and hoped from them, their heads tossing, nostrils in play, now distent, now contracted, limbs too dainty for the sand which they touch but to spurn, limbs slender, yet with impact crushing as hammers, every muscle of the rounded bodies distinct with glorious life. The fours neared the rope together. Then the trumpeter by the editor's side blew a signal vigorously. Twenty feet away it was not heard. Seeing the action, however, the judges dropped the rope, and not an instant too soon, for the hoof of one of Messala's horses struck it as it fell. Nothing daunted, the Roman shook out his long lash, loosed the reins, leaned forward, and with a triumphant shout took the wall. Jove with us! Jove with us! yelled all the Roman faction in a frenzy of delight. As Messala turned in, the bronze lion's head of the end of his axle caught the foreleg of the Athenian's right-hand horse, flinging the brute over against its yoke fellow. Both staggered, struggled, and lost their headway. The ushers had their will, at least in part. The thousands held their breath with horror. Only up where the consul sat was their shouting. Jove, with us! screamed the consul, Drusus, frantically. Jove, with us! answered his associates, seeing Messala speed on. Messala, having passed the Corinthian, was the only contestant on the Athenian's right, and to that side the latter tried to turn his broken fore. And then, as ill fortune would have it, the wheel of the Byzantine, who was next on the left, struck the tailpiece of his chariot, knocking his feet from under him. There was a crash, a scream of rage and fear, and the unfortunate Athenian fell under the hoofs of his own steeds. A terrible sight. On swept the Corinthian, on the Byzantine, on the Sidonian. Sanballat looked for Ben-Hur and turned again to Drusus and his coterie. A hundred sestertia on the Jew, he cried. Taken, answered Drusus. Another hundred on the Jew, shouted Sanballat. Nobody appeared to hear him. He called again. The situation below was too absorbing and they were too busy shouting, Messala, Messala, Jove with us. A party of workmen were removing the Athenians' horses and broken car. Another party were taking off the man himself, and every bench upon which there was a Greek was vocal with execrations and prayers for vengeance. 
Ben-Hur unhurt, was to the front, coursing freely forward along with the Roman. Behind them, in a group, followed the Sidonian, the Corinthian, and the Byzantine. The race was on. When the dash for position began, Ben-Hur, as we have seen, was on the extreme left of the six. For a moment, like the others, he was half-blinded by the light in the arena, yet he managed to catch sight of his antagonists and divine their purpose. At Messala, who was more than an antagonist to him, he gave one searching look. The air of passionless hauteur characteristic of the fine patrician face was there, as of old, and so was the Italian beauty, which the helmet rather increased. But more, it may have been a jealous fancy, or the effect of the brassy shadow in which the features were at that moment cast. Still, the Israelite thought he saw the soul of the man as through a glass, darkly, cruel, cunning, desperate, not so excited as determined, a soul in a tension of watchfulness and fierce resolve. In a time not longer than was required to turn to his fore again, Ben-Hur felt his own resolution hardened to a like temper. At whatever cost, at all hazards, he would humble this enemy. Prize, friends, wages, honour, everything that can be thought of as a possible interest in the race was lost in the one deliberate purpose. Regard for life even should not hold him back. Yet there was no passion on his part, no blinding rush of heated blood from heart to brain and back again, no impulse to fling himself upon fortune, for he did not believe in fortune, far otherwise. He had his plan, and confiding in himself, he settled to the task never more observant, never more capable. The air about him seemed aglow with a renewed and perfect transparency. When not halfway across the arena, he saw that Messala's rush would, if there was no collision, and the rope fell, give him the wall. It is one thing to see a necessity, and another to act upon it. Ben-Hur yielded the wall for the time. The rope fell, and all the fours but his sprang into the course under urgency of voice and lash. He drew head to the right, and with all the speed of his Arabs darted across the trails of his opponents, the angle of movement being such as to lose the least time and gain the greatest possible advance. So, while the spectators were shivering at the Athenians' mishap, and the Sidonian, Byzantine and Corinthian were striving, with such skill as they possessed, to avoid involvement in the ruin, Ben-Hur swept around and took the course neck and neck with Messala, though on the outside. The marvellous skill shown in making the change thus from the extreme left across to the extreme right, without appreciable loss, did not fail the sharp eyes upon the benches. The circus seemed to rock and rock again with prolonged applause. And the Romans began to doubt, thinking Messala might have found an equal, if not a master, and that in an Israelite. And now, racing side by side together, a narrow interval between them, the two neared the second goal. The pedestal of the three pillars there, viewed from the west, 
was a stone wall in the form of a half-circle, around which the course and opposite balcony were bent. Making this turn was considered in all respects the most telling test of a charioteer. As an involuntary admission of interest on the part of the spectators, a hush fell over all the circus, so that for the first time in the race, the rattle and clang of the cars plunging after the tugging steeds were distinctly heard. Then it would seem Messala observed Ben-Hur and recognised him, and at once the audacity of the man flamed out in an astonishing manner. Down, Eros, up Mars, he shouted, whirling his lash with practised hand. Down, Eros, up Mars, he repeated, and caught the well-doing Arabs of Ben-Hur, a cut the like of which they had never known. The blow was seen in every quarter, and the amazement was universal. The silence deepened. Up on the benches behind the consul, the boldest held his breath, waiting for the outcome. Only a moment thus, then involuntarily down from the balcony, as thunder falls, burst the indignant cry of the people. Ben-Hur's four sprang forward, affrighted. No hand had ever been laid upon them except in love. They had been nurtured ever so tenderly, and as they grew, their confidence in man became a lesson to men, beautiful to see. What should such dainty natures do under such indignity but leap as from death? Forward they sprang, as with one impulse, and forward leaped the car. Beyond question, every experience is serviceable to us. Where got Ben-Hur the large hand and mighty grip which helped him now so well? Where but from the oar with which he so long fought the sea? And what was this spring on the floor under his feet? To the dizzy eccentric lurch of a trembling ship yielded to the beat of staggering billows. So he kept his place and gave the four free rein and called to them in soothing voice, trying merely to guide them round the dangerous turn. And before the fever of the people began to abate, he had back the mastery. Not that only. On approaching the first goal, he was again side by side with Messala, bearing with him the sympathy and admiration of everyone, not a Roman. So clearly was the feeling shown, so vigorous its manifestation, that Messala, with all his boldness, felt it unsafe to trifle further. As the cars whirled round the goal, a man climbed on the entablature at the west end of the division wall and took down one of the conical wooden balls. A dolphin on the east entablature was taken down at the same time. In like manner, the second ball and second dolphin disappeared, and then the third ball and third dolphin. Three rounds concluded, still Messala held the inside position, still Ben-Hur moved with him side by side, still the other competitors followed as before. The contest began to have the appearance of one of the double races which became so popular in Rome during the later Caesarean period. Messala and Ben-Hur in the first, the Corinthian, Sidonian and Byzantine in the second. Meantime, the ushers succeeded in returning the multitude to their seats, though the clamour continued to run the rounds, keeping, as it were, even pace 
with the rivals in the course below. In the fifth round, the Sidonian succeeded in getting a place outside Ben-Hur, but lost it directly. The sixth round was entered upon without change of relative position. Gradually, the speed had been quickened. Gradually, the blood of the competitors warmed with the work. Men and beasts seemed to know alike that the final crisis was near, bringing the time for the winner to assert himself. The interest, which from the beginning had centred chiefly in the struggle between the Roman and the Jew, with an intense and general sympathy for the latter, was fast changing to anxiety on his account. On all the benches, the spectators bent forward, motionless, except as their faces turned following the contestants. A hundred sestertia on the Jew, cried Sanballat to the Romans, under the consul's awning. There was no reply. A talent, or five talents, or ten, choose ye. He shook his tablets at them defiantly. I will take thy sestertia, answered a Roman youth, preparing to write. Oh, do not do so, interposed a friend. Why? Messala hath reached his utmost speed. See him lean over his chariot rim, the reins loose as flying ribbons. Look then at the Jew. The first one looked. By Hercules, he replied, his countenance falling. The dog throws all his weight on the bits. I see, I see. If the gods help not our friend, he will be run away with by the Israelite. No, not yet. Jove, Jove, with us. Jove, with us. The cry swelled by every Latin tongue, shook the Valaria over the consul's head. If it were true that Messala had attained his utmost speed, the effort was with effect. Slowly but certainly he was beginning to forge ahead. His horses were running with their heads low down. From the balcony their bodies appeared actually to skim the earth. Their nostrils showed blood-red in expansion. Their eyes seemed straining in their sockets. Certainly the good steeds were doing their best. How long could they keep that pace? It was but the commencement of the sixth round. On they dashed. As they neared the second goal, Ben-Hur turned in behind the Roman's car. The joy of the Messala faction reached its bound. They screamed and howled and tossed their colours. And Sanballat filled his tablets with wages of their tendering. Maluk, in the lower gallery over the Gate of Triumph, found it hard to keep his cheer. He had cherished the vague hint dropped to him by Ben-Hur of something to happen in the turning of the western pillars. It was the fifth round, yet something had not come, and he had said to himself, the sixth will bring it. But lo, Ben-Hur was hardly holding a place at the tail of his enemy's car. Along the home stretch. Sixth round, Messala leading. Next, Ben-Hur. Thus to the first goal, and round it, Messala, fearful of losing his place, hugged the stony wall with perilous clasp. A foot to the left, and he had been dashed to pieces. Yet when the turn was finished, no man, looking at the wheel tracks of the two cars, could have said, Here went Messala, there the Jew. They left but one trace behind them. Simonides said to Ilderim, the moment the rivals turned into the course, I am no judge, good sheik, 
If Ben-Hur be not about to execute some design, his face hath that look. To which Ildrim answered, Saw you how clean they were and fresh? By the splendour of God, friend, they have not been running. But now watch. One ball and one dolphin remained on the entablatures, and all the people drew a long breath, for the beginning of the end was at hand. First, the Sidonian gave the scourge to his four, and, smarting with fear and pain, they dashed desperately forward, promising for a brief time to go to the front. The effort ended in promise. Next, the Byzantine and the Corinthian each made the trial with like result, after which they were practically out of the race. Thereupon, with a readiness perfectly explicable, all the factions except the Romans joined hope in Ben-Hur and openly indulged their feeling. Ben-Hur! Ben-Hur! they shouted. From the benches above him as he passed, the favour descended in fierce injunctions. Speed thee, Jew, take the wall now. On, loose the Arab horses, give them rain and scourge. Let him not have the turn on thee again, now nor never. Over the balustrade they stooped low, stretching their hands imploringly to him. Either he did not hear or could not do better, for halfway round the course and he was still following. At the second goal, even, still, no change. And now, to make the turn, Messala began to draw in his left-hand steeds, an act which necessarily slackened their speed. His spirit was high. On the three pillars only six hundred feet away were fame, increase of fortune, promotions and a triumph, ineffably sweetened by hate, all in store for him. That moment Maluk, in the gallery, saw Ben-Hur lean forward over his Arabs and give them the reins. Out flew the many-folded lash in his hand. Over the backs of the startled steeds it writhed and hissed and hissed and writhed again and again, and though it fell not, there were both sting and menace in its quick report. And as the man passed thus from quiet to resistless action, his face suffused, his eyes gleaming, along the reins, he seemed to flash his will, and instantly not one, but the four as one, answered with a leap that landed them alongside the Roman's car. Messala, on the perilous edge of the goal, heard but dared not look to see what the awakening portended. From the people he received no sign. Above the noises of the race there was but one voice, and that was Ben-Hur's. In the old Aramaic, as the sheik himself, he called to his Arab horses. On, Nateir, on, Rigel. What, Antares, dost thou linger now? Good horse, ho, Aldebaran. I hear them singing in the tents. I hear the children singing and the women singing of the stars. Of Atea, Antares, Ragel, Aldebaran, victory. And the song will never end. Well done, home tomorrow, under the black tent. Home, on, Antares. The tribe is waiting for us, and the master is waiting. Tis done. Tis done. Ha-ha, we have overthrown the proud. The hand that smote us is in the dust. 
ours the glory. Ah, steady, the work is done. Steady, rest. There had never been anything of the kind more simple, seldom anything so instantaneous. At the moment chosen for the dash, Messala was moving in a circle round the goal. To pass him, Ben-Hur had to cross the track, and good strategy required the movement to be in a forward direction. That is, on a like circle, limited to the least possible increase. The thousands on the benches understood it all. They saw the signal given, the magnificent response, the four, close outside Messala's outer wheel, Ben-Hur's inner wheel, behind the other's car. All this they saw. Then they heard a crash, loud enough to send a thrill through the circus, and quicker than thought, out over the course, a spray of shining white and yellow flinders flew. Down on its right side toppled the bed of the Roman's chariot. There was a rebound as of the axle hitting the hard earth, another and another, then the car went to pieces, and Messala, entangled in the reins, pitched forward headlong. To increase the horror of the sight by making death certain, the Sidonian, who had the wall next behind, could not stop or turn. Into the wreck full speed he drove, then over the Roman and into the latter's four, all mad with fear. Presently, out of the turmoil, the fighting of horses, the resound of blows, the murky cloud of dust and sand, he crawled, in time to see the Corinthian and Byzantine go on down the course after Ben-Hur, who had not been an instant delayed. The people arose and leaped upon the benches and shouted and screamed. Those who looked that way caught glimpses of Messala, now under the trampling of the fours, now under the abandoned cars. He was still. They thought him dead. But far the greater number followed Ben-Hur in his career. They had not seen the cunning touch of the reins, by which, turning a little to the left, he caught Messala's wheel with the iron-shod point of his axle and crushed it. But they had seen the transformation of the man and themselves felt the heat and the glow of his spirit, the heroic resolution, the maddening energy of action with which by look, word and gesture he so suddenly inspired his Arab horses. And such running, it was rather the long leaping of lions in harness. But for the lumbering chariot, it seemed the four were flying. When the Byzantine and Corinthian were halfway down the course, Ben-Hur turned the first goal. And the race was won. The consul arose. The people shouted themselves hoarse. The editor came down from his seat and crowned the victors. The procession was then formed and, midst the shouting of the multitude which had had its will, passed out of the gate of triumph, and the day was over. And that's where we'll leave it tonight. It feels real, doesn't it? That's the power of great writing. I do hope you enjoyed the chariot race from Ben-Hur. I think these days... The power of the book is less religious and more historical and just entertaining. But hats off to Lou Wallace 
for putting together action-adventure and deep themes of Christ and Christian spirituality. Why it's enough to make this not particularly observant Roman Catholic light a candle on this second Sunday of Advent. And if you are more visual, check out the movie. There's a lot of people who think that it is just a movie and not a book. I can heartily recommend both. Okay, I'll be back on Thursday, 9pm Sydney time with something offbeat, and I wish you all a great week. But before I go, many thanks to wonderful listeners who have left five-star reviews and written reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much. The Italian in me says, abbraccione forte forte, and the Australian says, thanks mates. And to all of you, till next time, take care. It's slippery out there. And thanks for listening to Nitty Reads.